Hello, everyone. My name is Charles Dunham. Thanks for participating in this presentation titled Telehealth Billing and Fraud Enforcement. I'm joined by my co-presenter, Carolyn Yocum, who is a director in the healthcare team uh, for the GAO. Uh, and it's a privilege to have her uh, participate and share her insights. Um, I'm going to have Carolyn kick it off. Uh, she's going to be talking about legislative and agency responses to the COVID pandemic, uh, as well as government concerns and initiatives related around telehealth um, and going forward. And I'm going to focus in on the government enforcement to combat fraud in the telehealth space and, to, and give you also some telehealth compliance um, background, regulatory standards, and practical advice. So, Carolyn, um, please get us off. All right, thank you. If we can advance the slides. Um, as Charles said, I'm Carolyn Yocum with the Government Accountability Office, and it's really a pleasure to be here to share with you GAO's work on Medicare and Medicaid and telehealth. Uh, this work is part of a larger role of oversight and federal spending that's been related to the pandemic. And since July of 2020, we've been periodically reporting on almost all aspects of federal spending and support that's being provided as a result of the coronavirus. So, but today we're going to focus in on Medicare and Medicaid telehealth. And I really am gonna cover three areas. First, I want to talk about what telehealth looked like before the pandemic. And then secondly, I want to talk about the flexibilities that came because of COVID-19, what happened in terms of utilization and some preliminary observations that GAO has made. And then lastly, there has been a fair amount of discussion on the Hill, on Capitol Hill among Congress about continuing some of these flexibilities. And GAO has talked about um, some things that need to be considered. And I'm gonna talk about two of the three that GAO has raised. Uh, the first has to do with beneficiary health and safety, and the second has to do with equity across beneficiaries. So if we can go to the next slide. This is from a report that GAO did back in 2017, and it really shows how telehealth worked in the Medicare program. Both the patient and the provider had to be at a healthcare facility. It had to be audiovisual. And it also was generally for rural patients who were in Medicare fee-for-service. Next slide. Utilization in um, Medicare telehealth was quite, quite low. 68,000 beneficiaries, about 175,000 claims. So, which is not even a drop in a bucket for Medicare. Um, there were also, however, some concerns about program integrity back then, and it had to do with this location-based tracking of the services. And in over half of those 175,000 claims, no one was sure where the beneficiary had, had attended. And so it wasn't clear if Medicare statute was being followed in the provision of telehealth services. Next slide. So um, here's a few examples, uh, pre-pandemic on Medicaid, and it was quite different. And the short answer is nobody knew much of anything. Uh, the states were able to do whatever they wanted in terms of telehealth. They could pick what services, what providers, and how they reimburse. Um, and CMS really did not review or track it. Um, 
that resulted in uh, something that always happens in Medicaid, which is a lot of variety. And some examples is there was one state that used telehealth only for provider to provider consults in federally qualified health centers. There was another state that focused in on psychiatry and specialist services that the state did not have available any other way. And then there was another state, very low on providers overall, who used telehealth as a way of expanding their network. Uh, there was no measurement of utilization back when we did our work in 2017. CMS's data on utilization as of 2019 shows a pretty limited use. If we'll go to the next slide. So then came the pandemic and a lot of activity to try to keep people who needed healthcare as safe as possible. And telehealth was a very reasonable conclusion to, to take. So on the Medicare side, they added a whole bunch of new services. There had been about 81 and they added 146 more. Providers such as occupational and physical therapists became part of telehealth. And then there was no more um, healthcare-based locations for telehealth. Beneficiaries and providers could both be home and deliver services. It was no longer primarily rural, but everywhere. And it was no longer automatically video-based technology. In some cases, the use of phones um, became part of it. And if we can go to the next slide. So this one shows the use of telehealth in Medicare, and you can see the huge spike of activity that happened. It went from about 300,000 services to a peak of about 1.9 million in late April, and then started to drop off again in um, May through October of 2020. Uh, next slide. These are some, some statistics on the different ways you can look at the use. Um, in terms of demographics, uh, it, the use of telehealth was slightly higher for beneficiaries younger than 65, um, slightly higher in urban versus rural areas, and this is on a proportional basis, but pretty similar across racial and ethnic groups. Next slide. So Medicaid, uh, CMS developed a system of about four different templates that states could fill out and submit for use. And um, there, there were more than 600 uh, waivers for states and territories that CMS had approved as of last spring. And some of these flexibilities that focused on telehealth were, uh, had to do with things like issuing guidance for delivering telehealth services, also, things that had been done in person could now be done virtual. And one of the best examples is for home and community-based services. Um, beneficiaries were usually assessed to see what their needs and care was. And under telehealth, that could now be done virtually, either by phone or through video. And then once again, out-of-state providers as a way of building networks and making sure that people were able to provide uh, services. Lastly, there was relaxation of provider screening and enrollment requirements, which are really used to make sure that bad, pro bad actors <laughs> in the provider field don't get into the programs. So things like criminal background checks were also not um, provided anymore uh, or were provided in a more limited basis. So next slide. 
Um, very similar to Medicare, Medicaid had a huge increase in the number of services. They went up to 46.9 million services, um, a huge percentage increase. Um, and um, it really, um, one of the, it really was once again, 19 to 64 year olds was the highest users of telehealth. And then lastly, and, and, and a subject of some concern is that mental health needs appeared to rise during the pandemic, but services actually declined. And telehealth was used to provide mental health services, but it did not make up that deficit in need and care. So next slide. So preliminary observations that GAO has come up with is, is really that there was an ability to more safely access care. Um, but evidence on how, how much quality is being delivered is really inconclusive and more work needs to be done. And we are actually doing more work. We're gonna continue looking at Medicare and Medicaid telehealth services and utilization. And in Medicaid, we're touching a little bit on the quality issue in our future reports. And then in September of this year, we've issued a report that does look at Medicaid home and community-based services the waivers and flexibilities that were used there and what we know about quality and um, beneficiary health and safety. So next slide. So when thinking about the continued use of telehealth and some of these flexibilities that happened, I think GAO's shifting its focus to think about what worked well, what do we know about what worked? <laughs> and also, I think as, as a nation, we're probably starting to understand that we're not really going to return to a normal that existed before the pandemic. We're going to be moving into a new normal. And uh, understanding what worked and what didn't work in the um, telehealth environment and other parts of the uh, COVID-19 um, pandemic is going to be really important. Medicare has already taken some actions to make some waivers permanent. Um, Medicaid is um, frankly pretty inundated right now with the 5.6 million new beneficiaries who have been accepted into the program and are continuing to provide services until the end of the, in the, end of the um, public health emergency. And once that emergency is over, then states will need to turn to that backlog of eligibility and, and reassess everybody in their programs. So next slide. Um, so two of the considerations, the first one really has to do with health and safety, and, and we have several concerns. Um, one is really about this increased need for mental health services and the decreased utilization that we're seeing. A second one is better understanding quality. What does quality look like for uh, telehealth? And quality can be about the delivery of the service itself. But there's also a functional aspect of what can you expect telehealth to do and how well can it do it given the circumstances. And then lastly, this relaxation of provider screening and enrollment requirements um, can put beneficiaries at risk if bad actors enter the program and they could be uh, bad actors who want more money or they could be bad actors who are bad providers and cause harm. And then uh, next slide. 
the GAO has done a lot of work on equity and it has been broader than Medicaid and Medicare, but it also has um, really taken a look at what CDC, the Centers for Disease Control needs to do to better measure that people who are at higher risk for hospitalization and death are getting tested, are getting vaccinations. And then also though, when you think about telehealth, there's disparate effects from, from the ability, uh, frankly, broadband and um, digital access at home. A uh, recent study found that about 26% of Medicare beneficiaries don't have digital access at home. They may have a landline, so telehealth is an option, but it's very unlikely that video capabilities will be there. So how do you create a program that serves all beneficiaries equally well with these disparate um, circumstances that people are facing? Uh, last slide. These are just some links to work that um, I've been citing and going through, and I would encourage you to look at GAO's coronavirus uh, webpage as well or any information. That's it, and I'm glad to answer questions as we have them. Thank you, Carolyn. That was wonderful insights and uh, perspective. I know that we're all waiting uh, to understand uh, how those flexibilities play out um, going forward, uh, whether it's in Congress and how, how CMS is acting, uh, and the guidance and input from GAO is obviously crucial um, to that going forward. And um, so we'll we'll wait, especially as we see, you know, on the state level, a number of the uh, executive orders from governors or the agency waivers. Uh, lapsing or being rescinded uh, at the state level. So a lot in flux uh, and certainly a, a time to keep informed and stay on top and, and valuable um, input uh, about what needs to be done and how to continue to provide that care uh, across the board to all beneficiaries of Medicare and Medicaid programs. Uh, it's great, great insights. So uh, I'm going to take a different um, uh, perspective or provide a different perspective um, as a, um, a, an attorney uh, in private practice, uh, a healthcare and corporate attorney representing healthcare providers and suppliers, uh, medical device manufacturers, um, digital health technology vendors, uh, management companies, private equity, venture capitalists, you name it across the board, um, and all the players in the healthcare space uh, and looking at the telehealth uh, and digital health technology industries. Um, I, I see it in both domestically in the US and represent a number of clients internationally as well. So um, my perspective is from that, uh, from that standpoint. And what I'm gonna be talking about, uh, as, uh, as we indicated um, in the government approaches um, to coverage, but um, the tale of two realities is that the government approach uh, to combating fraud in the telehealth space, which the government um, does in fact believe uh, is an issue, uh, believed it was an issue prior uh, to COVID and has identified it as a priority going forward, uh, which we'll touch upon. And many of my slides, um, I won't be able to go through all the materials. A lot of it is for substance um, for you to reference. Uh, so, um, so please bear that in mind. So the government agencies that are out there in the US uh, with oversight and enforcement over the telehealth uh, services um, 
um, being largely encompassing, you know, everything under under telehealth. Um, so, so you understand how I'm using that term. Uh, and in the Department of Justice, HHS, so it has the CMS, um, OIG, uh, OCR from a privacy and security standpoint. And then on the state level, obviously you have similar players uh, in the government uh, for the Medicaid programs and enforcement. Um, you have state insurance regulators, state licensure and medical boards. Um, but the tools uh, more specifically come from the statutory framework. There are numerous false claims act type uh, statutes and regulations, criminal healthcare fraud um, statutes and regulations, um, powers uh, for imposing civil monetary penalties, excluding providers from the program uh, and uh, both civil and criminal kind of working down the list. And, you know, primarily how you'll see government enforcement um, play out uh, can be in phases uh, or it can, you know, um, can ultimately jump to, uh, you know, criminal or civil investigations, depending on the nature of the complaint or concerns that the government has. But the tools um, in, in, their, uh, in their quiver uh, is, you know, basic claims, denials, and rejections when claims are submitted, um, pre and post payment audits uh, of those claims, uh, requesting additional documentation, um, following up uh, and to confirm that the services were rendered, who they were rendered by, all of the um, coverage right criteria um, being met. And then when we get into more serious uh, areas um, and significant enforcement um, comes subpoenas, search warrants, uh, there are civil investigation, investigative demands, CIDs uh, that include documentation requests, um, uh, interrogatories, uh, but also what has been more and more um, common uh, in as an enforcement tool um, when the government believes that there's an issue with the provider or supplier is suspension of their billing privileges under Medicare and Medicaid programs uh, and or cancellation or revocation of those billing privileges uh, as they uh, work to sort out um, what they believe are their concerns or allegations of, of fraud. Um, basically, it's turn off the um, faucet uh, and don't allow any more dollars to go out uh, while they investigate, which can be very complicated and difficult for providers and suppliers, um, but it is a tool that we're seeing used more and more often. Of course, there's a regulatory framework and you kind of keep um, the, them honest on to it. But as I mentioned, um, you know, telehealth and, 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 and concerns with fraud in the telehealth space were uh, present prior to uh, the COVID pandemic and the increase um, that Carolyn referred to in the use of telehealth uh, services and other uh, technology-based services to deliver care. Um, there are a number of examples, uh, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I chose to highlight the biggest ones, of course, um, and they have fun names. Uh, DOJ always likes to apply fun uh, names to their, um, their investigations. Um, and the, the two are uh, Operation Brace Yourself and Operation Double Helix. Um, both of them related to um, ancillary items or services, such as durable medical equipment, pharmaceuticals, um, laboratory tests, uh, being ordered, uh, prescribed via a telehealth uh, consult. And in this case, these, um, these uh, DOJ investigations and then and subsequent uh, takedowns and charges 
uh, were a high dollar amount. We're talking $1.7 billion in charges collectively on the, on the Operation Brace Yourself and $2.1 billion in charges under Operation Double Helix. So these are serious um, uh, uh, dollars uh, in play, uh, federal healthcare program dollars in play. Um, some of that, uh, I think, was also attributable to commercial plans. But um, in short, both of these um, cases um, related to doctors um, being paid to prescribe uh, either with or, uh, or without a patient interaction or only, only through a brief telephonic conversation uh, with the patient. Um, you know, those uh, activities, uh, of course, especially the telephonic conversation, may not be an issue under the flexibilities that were afforded uh, during the COVID pandemic coverage of telephone-only consults. Uh, but as you'll see, um, and I'll get into some of the discussions of, of what to watch out for, uh, these were the issues at hand um, prior, to, prior to COVID. But the government's position, um, we can pull from information, not only those cases and, and uh, enforcement actions by the DOJ, but we can also see how the uh, government has been regulating uh, the telehealth industry from the OIG advisory opinions, um, the type of uh, financial arrangements uh, or, or, or um, joint ventures um, between hospitals and clinics or between um, providers and management companies um, as it relates to telehealth services uh, and being able to fund uh, and provide the equipment uh, to prevent to those provider referral services, um, offering discounted uh, equipment or software to patients. All of those things we can um, glean some insights in the government's focus uh, and what they believe are, are, are issues of concern. Um, Carolyn re re referenced, uh, I believe the OIG audit report back in 2018. Uh, so I won't go through that, uh, but I focus in on what we know is coming down uh, the bike is the OIG's 2021 work plan, uh, where they specifically identified um, that they're going to look for um, potentially inappropriate services um, prior to payment, that is the prepayment uh, review process. And they're also going to be doing engaged in data analytics to identify uh, you know, suspicious billing patterns or um, go through and comb through claims that have been paid um, for the post-payment screens to determine uh, whether or not they believe that there has been fraudulent billing uh, or, um, you know, from a non-compliance um, standpoint, uh, repeat um, non-compliant billing patterns. Uh, the Department of Justice has also made that clear that telehealth um, in, in particular, um, as well as COVID testing, uh, is, a, is a focus uh, of theirs, um, you know, in, in, in 2021 as well as 2022. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're, as a firm, we're starting to see that play out with, uh, like I said, those tools, civil investigative demands, uh, subpoenas, payment audits, and the like, we're starting to see that uh, across the U.S. in different areas. So some uh, insights, um, guidance for you to take um, back with you when you're in fact delivering uh, these telehealth services or technology-based services, or you're a vendor uh, that is uh, providing um, the devices or products or you know, digital health technology uh, in order to deliver those services. Um, these, uh, as we'll go through, 
uh, are very summary um, slides. I can't get into detail um, based upon the time that we have. Um, so I'll go through here again, reference these um, as you please. So Medicare Part B coverage, um, as Karen referred to, the flexibilities that were afforded uh, during um, uh, the, the pandemic, which are still in place um, for the most part as the public health emergency tag still is in place. The telehealth services, but prior to that had, as many of you are aware, uh, limitations, type of service, modality, provider type, geographic area, originating site location. All of these things were um, inhibitors, uh, I'll use that word, um, to expansion of Medicare, to delivering that uh, in the Medicare program, to delivering telehealth services to Medicare beneficiaries um, in all areas um, of the country. And so those are the flexibilities that Carolyn was referring to that were implemented in order to allow for um, those Medicare beneficiaries to receive uh, telehealth services. Um, and uh, one of those, of course, being the existence of a prior provider patient relationship. Uh, which was a significant um, barrier, again, a flexibility. So this bullet point about technology-based services is to identify the distinction um, between a telehealth service and technology-based service, which uh, was implemented under the Trump administration prior uh, to the pandemic. Um, coverage of virtual check-ins, remote patient monitoring, and remote patient monitoring RPM has obviously taken off um, significantly. Uh, since it, since this uh, designation as it being outside of the telehealth services, outside of those limitations under on the Part B coverage for telehealth services. And then I note Medicare Advantage plans. I note that because they have significant flexibility uh, in coverage of telehealth services and technology-based services. They, have, they were given, uh, again, prior to uh, the pandemic, uh, a full uh, opportunity to add additional telehealth benefits as they deemed appropriate. And so long as they gave notice uh, to CMS and recorded the, the costs, um, there is great flexibility there for them. And I think the last time I looked, the number of Medicare beneficiaries that are in Medicare Advantage plans is somewhere in the high 30s, if not higher than that now. Um, so that population, uh, if, if the Medicare Advantage plans adopted, can have access to telehealth uh, services and specifically technology-based um, services and, and new digital health technology um, that other beneficiaries under Medicare Part B uh, would not have uh, access to. So specifically on the telehealth services, um, here are bullet points. I'm not going to go through all of them. But these are the recommendations um, for you to, um, to understand a high priority when you're looking at developing a, um, not only a uh, delivery of care um, and, 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 and those, um, that, that consult and how you're, uh, how you're developing that protocol and the clinical protocol for um, your providers, physicians and providers but also how you're looking at your compliance programs as a whole, which I'll touch upon um, briefly at the end here. Um, you know, going through, making sure that, that you're, you're, you're establishing the provider-patient relationship appropriately, uh, even in accordance with state law, you know, informed consents, making sure you're understanding when and how you can uh, engage in audio only versus audio-visual requirements. Um, 
One of the things uh, that is important to understand, especially as we make that transition, a lot of telehealth providers make the transition from a cash pay model to more third-party payers, such as Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial payers, is that in fact, whether that service is covered um, by those third-party payers or a non-covered service. Um, because if it's a covered service and you're enrolled in Medicare, you cannot charge cash pay for that service. Um, so it's really important to understand as the provider of a service, what you can and cannot charge for depending on uh, whether what the patient's coverage may be um, and in your participation in those third-party payer programs. Again, a very nuanced um, issue, but I raise it um, because it's really important. Then from a marketing and advertising and business generation standpoint, the government really frowns upon patient solicitation. Uh, that direct patient solicitation where you're, you're in, and those were all the fraud, you know, DOJ takedowns that we're talking about where they were going out there and, and soliciting patients and, and connecting them with telehealth providers um, rather than the patients coming to um, those providers for care. Um, that's the type of activity that the government looks at specifically and, and, and as I said, frowns upon. Um, but then again, part of that is the compensation arrangement and financial arrangement uh, between the providers and suppliers and those recipients of the referrals for those ancillary items and services. And make no mistake, in order to de deliver telehealth services effectively, you need the providers to be able to order um, you know, di diagnostic tests, pharmaceuticals, um, DME. I mean, that has to happen. Um, but what the government's focused in on is if, it, if the system and the use is being abused um, for that financial gain, as Carolyn said, the bad actors that are out there. So remote patient monitoring, again, this is an area that is exploding uh, of a country. Uh, we're doing a lot of work in this space. And here's some bullet points on things to understand to make sure um, you're you know, documenting everything correctly, make sure you're implementing programs that are compliant, make sure that you're not gonna be subject to recoupment uh, two or three years down the road and having to pay back all of the, um, uh, those revenues and the reimbursement that you receive for, for delivering the services. Um, obviously, you know, understanding our RPM codes and criteria, I have a slide that I won't go through, but it's, it's on the next slide for you to look at of all the current RPM codes, um, making sure that the patient population you're working with that are receiving RPM do have an acute or chronic care, chronic care condition. That is an obligation. You, you, you can't use RPM and monitor unless the patient has that such a condition. Um, and, and, and one that's interesting is you know, really understanding what type of device is actually covered by Medicare um, and, and the documentation um, to support all of those um, uh, the support that the device meets that criteria, um, that the device is a um, auto uh, um, device that automatically collects the physiologic data that transmits that data to the provider. And all of those things, you need to um, make sure that your vendor and, and you're on the same page, which is that bullet point there at the bottom uh, about your vendor contract terms and conditions, um, because many you know, physician group practices are relying upon the vendors um, to kind of outline these these programs for them and provide that assistance. So, um, you know, again, and documentation is key, documenting the, and to support the services, the time-based services, the activities being performed. All of these things you can, you know, look into uh, how to use multiple devices, how to actually code very, you know, 
can be complicated uh, areas um, and things that you need to think through and understand before you jump uh, with both feet into the pool and start delivering RPM um, services to your patient population. So here's the RPM CPT codes that I referenced. Uh, again, the, um, the, you know, this is just for quick reference. Um, this is, again, the concept of items, ancillary items and services, specifically lab tests needing to be provided. Um, that uh, you know, there's criteria behind establishing that it's medically appropriate and reasonable and necessary uh, for these services. These are the types of things that the government's looking at uh, and, and, and will challenge, as well as commercial health plans. Uh, they, they have the same type of, uh, or more even more stringent criteria sometimes. So very quickly, and we'll end, um, here's just bullet points of the type of resources that uh, myself and other healthcare attorneys look to when advising clients and establishing compliance programs, uh, which the OIG recognizes, or you know, doesn't mandate, but essentially um, promotes uh, and indirectly then requires uh, that providers uh, and suppliers billing um, federal healthcare programs have a, uh, a substantive and effective in its implementation compliance program. Uh, and lastly, this is a reference to the OIG guidance of those seven primary areas in which they want to see compliance. Um, they want to see uh, that you have policies and procedures that in fact address all of these areas and that is being implemented um, uh, you know, in, this, in that way. Uh, again, these are just high-level bullet points. Um, there are significantly more substance um, you know, behind them, um, but this is, uh, again, a helpful resource for you. So I will end there. Uh, hopefully, this has been informative and provided you um, both perspectives from the government and the private practice. Uh, and uh, Carolyn, and I have any additional last comments before we go? Uh, no, just uh, thank you all for your time and attention.